You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com GPS. That's netsuite.com GPS. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. On today's program, amidst the utter political and economic chaos in the United Kingdom, economic credibility gone, Liz Truss resigns, becoming the shortest tenured prime minister in that country's long and storied history. I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. What happens now? I will ask the Economist Editor-in-Chief, Zanny minton Beddows. Then, next week, Benjamin Netanyahu might get a third stint as Israel's Prime Minister. Today, you'll hear from him about Iran's nuclear program, Israel's relations with its neighbors, Bibi's own relations with Vladimir Putin. I wouldn't call it a love affair, but I would call it uh, uh, a question of interest. And more. Also, the protests in Iran have now been going on for more than a month and show no signs of slowing. I'll get the big picture from Robin Wright of The New Yorker, who calls this the world's first women-led counter-revolution. But first, here's my take. In late 1992, I started my first full-time job as managing editor of Foreign Affairs. I remember sorting through manuscript after manuscript, arguing that Japan was going to take over the world. That claim was not unusual at the time. A big bestseller of the year was Michael Crichton's novel, Rising Sun, a call to arms for economic war with Tokyo. In 1991, the book, The Coming War with Japan, predicted inevitable and major military conflict. During the 1992 presidential primaries, one of the pithiest campaign slogans came from Democratic Senator Paul Songus. The Cold War is over, he would say. Japan won. What is striking about these words is that they all came well after the crash of the Japanese stock market, which fell from its peak in December 1989. We now mark 1990, as the year that Japan's giddy growth era ended. But at the time, people assumed this was just a temporary interruption. They saw the data, but then returned to their old thinking. Could we be seeing something similar happen with China these days? It seems clear that China's growth is stalling. The country that since 1978 has grown at an average of over 9% annually is projected to grow about 3% this year. Some think tanks have postponed their projections for when the country's economy would overtake the United States to become the world's largest economy, to 2030 or even later. Some experts are even suggesting that this might never happen, which is striking given that China's population is over four times larger than America's. There are many reasons for this new bearish mood about China. It's crazy COVID policy, real estate bubbles, debt, 
and perhaps most consequential for the long term, a demographic collapse. China's fertility rate is now lower than Japan's. But above all looms the change of course away from the market undertaken by the Chinese government in the last 10 years. China grew at a stunning pace since 1978 because it embraced markets and trade. But Xi Jinping has moved the country to a very different model, one that views the state as the primary engine of the economy, identifying industries, providing funding, and controlling the participants. And growth has stalled. But if we can see that China is actually weaker than we had thought a few years ago, has that led us to change our conclusions accordingly? No. Just as it is becoming clear that Xi's embrace of the state and his made-in-China industrial policy is not working, Washington has been busily implementing its own version of Chinese-style industrial policy. The situation is reminiscent of the late 1980s when Americans spoke enviously of Japan's Ministry of International Trade and Industry, a ministry that was in fact in the process of making a series of expensive bets on future industries that flopped. China doesn't just face economic challenges. Xi's foreign policy has mostly been a failure. His expansionism, bluster and repression have produced quantifiable results. Unfavorable views of China have skyrocketed in recent years to all-time or near all-time highs in several countries, according to a Pew survey. From Australia to Spain, countries that were once favorably inclined have shifted away from Beijing. China's foreign overtures have been duds, from the expensive and messy Belt and Road Initiative to its effort to woo Eastern Europe. The latter project, China's 16 plus one group, is fizzling due to countries' disappointed expectations and Beijing's relations with Moscow. And yet, in a move reminiscent of America's crazed efforts to counter Soviet influence anywhere and everywhere, even if that meant allying with dictators in remote countries in Africa, Washington has been frantically wooing Palau, a population of around 18,000, and other tiny Pacific islands to free them from Beijing's embrace. The basic argument for a hyper-hawkish policy toward China has been that China was rising fearsomely And that is what made it so dangerous. Prepare yourself for a new argument. China is declining precipitously, and that is why it is so dangerous. So even if the facts are the opposite of what was previously asserted, the conclusion somehow remains the same. In fact, while declining powers do sometimes pose a threat, the general and obvious rule remains that as countries grow rich and powerful, they try to expand their political and military reach. Moscow in the 1990s when its economy was collapsing allowed Ukraine to become independent. Putin, flush from a decade of high energy prices, invaded Ukraine. Scholars have tracked Chinese foreign policy and found that it turns inward in periods of weakness and stress. Now let me be clear. China with all its limitations still presents a powerful challenge for the United States the most serious long-term one by far but right-sizing this threat and understanding it correctly is crucial to formulating the best strategy to tackle it instead Washington's conventional wisdom is still filled with exaggerated fears and fantasies of an enemy that is 10 feet tall Go to cnn.com/farid 
for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. When British Prime Minister Liz Truss came out of 10 Downing Street on Thursday and announced she was resigning, she did ensure her tenure would go down in history as the shortest ever. She had been in office just 45 days. Truss promised a successor would be chosen by the end of this week, but it, in the meantime, raises questions. First and foremost, who will that person be? And can he or she pull the UK out of this great political and economic chaos? Joining me now is Zanny Minton Beddoes, the editor in chief of The Economist. Zanny, first, let's count the votes. Uh, you need 100 votes uh, or uh, expressions of support to be a, a contender for the Tory party's uh, prime ministerial, you know, the internal election. Rishi Sunak, the, the former chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, Indian Brit or British of Indian origin, uh, has it. Uh, Boris Johnson is trying to make a comeback. Uh, can he make it? Well, Fareed, uh, great to join you from this laughing stock country that we are right now. Um, you're right, Rishi Sunak, uh, the former chancellor and the man who lost to Liz Truss in the leadership contest in the summer, has well over 100 MP votes in the bag. So he is definitely in the running. And the deadline is 2 p.m. on Monday. That's 2 p.m. tomorrow. Boris Johnson's supporters claim that he has 100, but actually publicly declared he's only got about 60. Well-informed websites suggest that he may have 75, including people who have not yet publicly declared, but he's certainly still a number short with now 24 hours to go. And if he does get 100, then we will have a contest which is then goes to the Conservative Party members, those same people who uh, uh, put Liz Truss in Downing Street over the summer, and the, I think the most likely is that Sunak, Johnson doesn't make it and that Sunak has this in the bag. But if Boris Johnson makes it through, then the trouble is that he is popular with the party members. And he may well then, you know, we're going to have an absolutely chaotic next few days if that happens. He does not command enough support amongst MPs to form a stable government. So if Boris Johnson makes it through, I'm afraid the soap opera continues. If Rishi Sunak is the next prime minister... Hopefully, this extraordinary soap opera uh, is replaced by stable, sensible government. And it's, it, it, to me, is so extraordinary. This is happening in the Tory party, which is, you know, the oldest political party in the world, one of the most disciplined political parties. And is it all fundamentally a kind of hangover from Brexit? Because it does seem as though the, the Britain's relationship with Europe has just cracked the Conservative Party. That is definitely one of the underlying causes. Now, the proximate cause for all of this is that Liz Truss turned out not just to be, as you said, the shortest uh, lived prime minister in British history. She was also clearly one of the most incompetent, or if not the most incompetent. And she came in with a package of uh, sort of warmed over Reaganism, where she was going to use tax cuts and deregulation to kickstart British growth. And weak British growth has been a problem. But the way she did it, and the fact that she brought in even more tax cuts than she'd promised, she fired her chief financial civil servant. She said she wasn't going to look at any of the technocrat reviews of how much she was spending. That meant that she lost the confidence of the market. As you remember, the pound tumbled, guilt yield soared. And that loss of confidence of the financial markets in the Conservative Party, in the British government, was the kind of proximate cause. But behind that, I think there are two things which you're right are related for Brexit. One is economically. Britain is a riskier place since it left the European Union. 
because its economy has been hit. And, and the fact that we had COVID and the pandemic sort of masked that. But there is no doubt that the British economy is in less good shape than it would have been if we hadn't left the European Union. And secondly, politically, as you say, Brexit still hangs over the Tory party, a party that is tired after four years in government, that is still riven by debates about whether Brexit means that Britain has the ability to become a kind of buccaneering, deregulated Singapore on Thames, which was sort of the Liz Truss view, or whether it's actually a means to allowing a clampdown on immigration and a much more sort of little England view, which many others in the Tory party have. And so the Tory party is completely factionally riven. The, it's the oldest political party in the world. It used to be absolutely brilliant. I've lost audio. Zani, is part of all this um, also that we're in a kind of new age? We're in an age where interest rates matter. Um, you know, Reaganism and Thatcherism could work when you were in a world of declining interest rates. Uh, deficits sort of didn't matter because you were borrowing at almost zero. What the market seems to be saying, and maybe we all yes, need to be listening is interest rates do matter now. You can't just uh, cut taxes willy-nilly and uh, assume the deficits don't matter. Interest rates are going to be high. Servicing this debt is going to be expensive. Absolutely. We are in a world where interest rates matter. We're in a world where inflation is way high and central banks are trying to get inflation down. So the macro environment is very different. But it's also true that Britain could never really do a warmed-over Reaganism because Ronald Reagan, who was able to you know, massively increase deficits, had the dollar and the dollar surged. Britain is a smaller open economy that does not have a dollar and so is a much riskier bet and relies much more on financial market confidence. Your, uh, your cover this week is brilliant. It's, it's called Brittany. <laughs> um, and the idea is, of course, Britain as Italy. Uh, and I suppose, you know, what one thinks of when one thinks of Italy, Italian politics is chaos uh, and constantly changing governments. Uh, Britain has now had, what, four prime ministers in five years. Uh, it does all this. I mean, it's a it's a it's it's a very funny way to think of it. But does it does it damage Britain's credibility and influence in the world? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I'm delighted you find the cover funny. I'm afraid that many of our Italian readers and many people in Italy did not. It caused a storm of anger and protest. Um, we were trying to, as we do, trying to use humour to uh, shine a spotlight on comparisons that I think are very real. Italy has long had dramatic political instability. It has been under the thumb of the bond market and had chronically low growth. And actually, if you look at the UK now, it has many of the same things. We've had the same number of prime ministers as Italy since 2015. We're also under the thumb of the bond markets, even though we have our own central bank and our own currency. But perhaps most worryingly, our productivity has slumped. It's still better than Italy's, but it has slumped and we have very slow growth. And one thing that Liz Truss was right on is that Britain needs to get its growth rate higher. It needs the reforms that make the economy grow because we can't support our social spending, our national health service, all the things that Britons like without faster growth. But we are at the moment unable to produce a coherent set of policies and have politicians who are serious, steadfast and have the caliber to get that done. As always, Annie, thank you. Uh, great insights. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Um, next on GPS, Boris Johnson isn't the only former prime minister who may get another chance at the top job. Next up, Israel's Benjamin Netanyahu on his path to power.
Next Tuesday, Israel will hold its fifth election in four years. The unstable coalition that ousted Benjamin Netanyahu last year, led by Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid, collapsed in June with the upcoming vote. Netanyahu, already the longest-serving prime minister in Israel's history, has another shot at power. In his time out of power, Netanyahu wrote a just-published memoir called Bibi, My Story. He joins me from Jerusalem. Welcome, sir. Good to be with you, Farid. Uh, let me ask you about, you know, one of the central achievements in, in your time in office, um, and that is the Abraham Accords and the more broadly the rapprochement with the moderate Arabs. Um, for a long time, people believed in the Middle East that unless you could get anything done on the Palestinian issue, the Israeli-Palestinian issue, you could not make peace with the Arabs. And in, actually, what you did was reverse that, uh, you and the, and the Gulf states, in a sense. Um, what do you think changed? Was it that the Palestinian issue has just declined in importance for Arabs? Because there was a time, you know, certainly when you go back to Nasser and people like that, where it was the central issue. Um, or is it that the rise of Iran has given Israel and Saudi Arabia and the UAE a common enemy? Well, I think it's both the rise of Iran and, frankly, the rise of Israel. Uh, I devoted a good chunk of my life uh, and all my adult life to enhancing Israel's military power, which can only be enhanced by freeing up its economy. So we have economic power. And the combination of the two gave us the third power, which is diplomatic power. When Israel became uh, the leading, perhaps uh, a leading and if not the leading innovation nation, that produced thousands of startups, uh, produced uh, cybersecurity, produced uh, uh, unmatchable uh, intelligence against terrorism. We became interesting to other countries uh, in five continents, but also in the Middle East. And when I frankly led uh, the opposition to Iran's arming itself with nuclear weapons, that created a common interest with uh, many of the Arab countries. So the rise of the, uh, of the Iranian threat on the one side and the rise of Israeli power on the other side uh, combined to, uh, I think, to create the, uh, the interest uh, in the Gulf states who now viewed Israel not as their enemy but as their indispensable ally to confront a common threat, Iran, and also to better the lives of their citizens with Israeli innovation and technology. What do you think it will take for Saudi Arabia to join in that normalization process? You obviously tried to get it, and the reports are that they want some movement on the Israeli-Palestinian issue. What will it take to get Saudi Arabia to recognize Israel? Well, the first thing you have to recognize is that Saudi Arabia uh, already has begun uh, an incremental process of normalization because in 2018, well before the Abraham Accords in 2020, uh, the Saudis opened their their, the Saudi airspace to hundreds of thousands of Israelis who could fly to uh, the Gulf states and now beyond the Gulf states. Uh, that was uh, a deliberate decision. Also, to be honest, uh, and I, I don't think I'm revealing here uh, something you don't know, but I'll say it anyway. There's no way that the accords with uh, the Gulf states would have happened without the approval of Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia is inching its way towards uh, normalization. I think that's en route. That'll certainly be my chief goal, diplomatic goal, 
if I'm re-elected, as I hope I will be in, in a few weeks, I think they have to have the confidence that Israel is continuing the policy of uh, standing up to Iranian aggression, which threatens them uh, not as much, but not, <laughs> not much less than it threatens us. Uh, and I think they'll, they'll be assured of that if I'm re-elected. You don't think they will require any movement on the Israeli-Palestinian issue? Perhaps some, but I think that uh, they recognize too that if you give the Palestinians a veto, we're not going to have peace. Let me ask you about the Iran deal. You were very influential in getting Donald Trump to pull out of the Iran deal. Um, at the time, uh, and the IEA and even Israeli intelligence, everyone uh, b believes that Iran was adhering to the deal and was about a year and a half away from the capacity to make a nuclear weapon. Now that the deal has been scrapped, most intelligence estimates say that Iran is one month away from the capacity to, do, to make a nuclear weapon. How does that enhance the security of Israel to be in a situation where Iran has no constraints on, its, uh, on, on what it's doing uh, and has ramped up its, uh, all, the, all the pathways to a nuclear bomb? Well, I describe in my book, Fareed, uh, a raid on Iran's secret nuclear archives that I authorized the Mossads to carry out. Uh, and if you saw, did you ever see the movie Argo? Yes. You saw that. Uh, this was Argo on steroids. I mean, our, our men uh, pilfered uh, from locked safes uh, half a ton of materials, discs, uh, documents, and were being chased by Iranian security. They got it out. They got themselves out. And when we looked at the, this material, we could see that uh, Iran was lying, that it wasn't keeping to the agreement. In fact, we then went to the IAEA with three sites, three nuclear sites that they hadn't declared. So Iran was cheating. The deal wasn't protecting uh, in any way. And yes, with a deal or without a deal, Iran would go forward to develop nuclear weapons. The only thing that stops a rogue regime from developing nuclear weapons, and I say this very specifically in my book, is the combination of crippling sanctions and a credible military option. All the agreement does, Farid, is give Iran a, an international uh, seal of approval to become a threshold nuclear state. Everybody understands it. The deal's not going to stop Iran. It's not going to prevent a nuclear arsenal. It's going to facilitate it with international approval. You All don't, right. you can't avoid the fact that you have to confront Iran. So let me just say for the record, the, uh, the IAEA and U.S. intelligence both do believe that, that Iran was adhering to the deal. But my question to you is, if you become prime minister, the, the dilemma you presented is one you will face. I Iran will be one month away from a nuclear weapon and uh, uh, the, pos the possibility of making a nuclear weapon. Are you, will, are you comfortable allowing that short fuse to exist, or will you use military means to do something about it? First of all, I think it's a, it takes a little longer to produce a nuclear weapon, but I, I won't get into that because there, there are many components involved. But I will say this. I will do, Fareed, whatever I need to do to prevent Iran, which calls for the annihilation of Israel, to develop the weapons to threaten us. But they also threaten you, the United States. Because Iran calls us the small Satan. They call America the great Satan. They say, they chant, death to Israel, death to America. Now, do you want this regime to have the means to deliver with ballistic, intercontinental ballistic missiles 
nuclear-tipped missiles to any city in the United States? Of course not. Uh, it's not Holland that's getting nuclear weapons. It's the Ayatollahs, for God's sake. We have to take common action to prevent this from happening. Because if Iran gets a nuclear arsenal, the problem of staving off Iran's aggression, Iran's terrorism, and Iran's actual threats to our societies would be much more difficult. I'm committed to prevent that from happening. Next on GPS, I will ask Bibi Netanyahu about what one Israeli columnist called the strange love affair between Vladimir Putin and Bibi Netanyahu. Does he regret it now? And we are back with the former Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. Let me ask you about another uh, relationship of yours during the period you were Prime Minister. Um, it's what Yossi Melman, the Israeli journalist, calls the, the strange love affair between Bibi and Putin. You met with Vladimir Putin, phone conversations. Um, you went to the opera, uh, the, the ballet with him. Um, a lot of people feel that international statesmen coddled Putin rather than uh, creating kind of a tough stand of deterrence that would have made him understand the costs of his kind of actions. In retrospect, what do you think of this friendship? First of all, I wouldn't call it a love affair, but I would call it uh, uh, a question of interest. Uh, national leaders have a responsibility for the security of their country. The Russian and Israeli air forces are literally flying next to each other over the skies of Syria. I was committed to preventing Iran from creating another uh, Lebanon front in Syria. So we took hundreds and hundreds of air sorties against their, uh, their attempts to implant themselves militarily in Syria. That got us into a potential uh, clash with uh, the Russian air force that is also flying over the skies of Syria. So I made it a point to, and they almost did, by the way. The, I also write that in my book. We nearly clashed several times. And starting a war between Russia and Israel, I didn't think was a good idea. So I made every effort to coordinate with, uh, the, the, uh, with Putin and the Russian military the, uh, uh, the sorties so we wouldn't bump into each other. And we achieved that goal. And that, I think, is a, a matter of national interest. As far as Russia is concerned, I think you have to be... Look, I think the Ukrainian thing could spiral out of control. I, I think it's tragic. The wanton bombing of civilians is horrible. Uh, but I think you now face another issue, and that is that it could spiral out of control to what they call a tactical, the use of tactical nuclear weapons. I, I don't think materially it matters if it's tactical or strategic. Uh, the world has not crossed that threshold for 77 years, and I think it requires very firm and prudent stewardship to prevent that from happening because as horrible as the tragedies are today in Ukraine, you could face a much bigger tragedy if this uh, is not prevented. I was in Kyiv about a month ago and I talked to President Zelensky and uh, pretty much all the senior officials there. And one uh, theme that came through very clearly was their disappointment with Israel. They felt that uh, Israel had not really supported them as they would have liked in, in word, in deed. They've asked for, Israel has this amazing Iron, Iron Dome defense. They, they, they asked for some help there. Uh, and they feel that Israel has maintained a kind of uh, 
uh, you know, kind of has been fudging, is not willing to really support them in what is their life and death struggle. And, you know, to, a president, for President Zelensky, who is, um, you know, of Jewish descent, I think it was particularly painful. Well, I, I think Israel has supported Ukraine, first of all, in humanitarian terms. It's taken into a tiny country. Israel is a small country. It's taken an inordinate amount of Jewish and non-Jewish uh, Ukrainian refugees, number one. Number two, we've sent field hospitals and other humanitarian supplies. Uh, but number three, uh, I don't argue with you. This is the decision of the current Israeli government. If I get into power, I'll look into this question. Uh, I think it's a, it's a very delicate question given the, question, the, the issues that I raised, but I think it's a, it's a valid one. If I get elected, I'll look into it. Bibi Netanyahu, pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Farid. Good to be with you. Next on GPS, women are leading the charge for change in Iran. My next guest says we are witnessing the first women-led counter-revolution. That story when we come back. Women burning their hijabs, cutting their hair, and chanting, women, life, liberty. It's all in protest of Iran's regime now in power for more than 40 years. The spark, of course, was the death of Mahsa Amini, a young woman who died after being detained by the morality police of the Islamic Republic. And five weeks after the protests began, it seems the regime is in for a protracted fight. The veteran Middle East reporter Robin Wright said in The New Yorker that we are witnessing the world's first counter-revolution led by women. And I'm pleased to have Robin joining me today. She's also the author of The Last Great Revolution, Turmoil and Transformation in Iran. Robin, explain first why you call this a counter-revolution, not a revolution. Well, at the moment, it's still just a rejection of the system, of the Islamic Republic. We're not at the point that these kids have an idea, an ideology, something that they're offering as an alternative. So far, this is largely kind of flash mobs, people gathering on a campus, gathering on street corners where they light a bonfire and throw their hijabs, their head, head scars. Uh, we are seeing, you know, a rebellion against the Islamic Republic. So we're not yet at a revolution. This is at an early stage. Who knows what it will lead to? But we've seen many protests in Iran over the last five years, and none of them have quite gotten to the point that they were a practical, tangible threat to the regime. And that, that means, it sounds like, from what you're saying, this does not seem to have the kind of organization, the, the ideology, the staying power to pose a real threat to the regime. The regime claims that 41% of those arrested are under the age of 20. This is not the kind of critical mass, as you know so well, that brings together the elite of society where people are willing, uh, who are important jobs, to defect from the system, whether it's the military or the bazaar or the oil workers. There are tokens of that so far, but nothing, there's no body to it yet. You know, it's interesting. I, I think one of the things in this symbol, symbolizes, in a sense, all the things you were describing um, you need a leader. You need an alternative leader. Even, for example, in Venezuela, where it almost succeeded, you had that opposition leader. In Iran, um, I mean, is it fair to say, alas, like, you know, as they used to say about Saddam Hussein, 
all the potential opposition leaders are either dead or in jail? Or in exile. Yes, I think that's true. And in 2009, the protests, the Green Movement protests, rallied around the two losing presidential candidates. There was a sense that there was an alternative to President Ahmadinejad, who there were claims was reelected fraudulently. Today, we don't see the, an organization, a leader, a manifesto, an idea. These are people of very diverse political and, and social positions uh, who've come together because they want private freedoms. They want personal freedoms. Um, they're not yet giving us an alternative vision. It seemed as though there was, within the regime, a certain amount of dissent and a kind of breaking off. As you say, there, there were people who were running for president, and one of them had been a former prime minister. So these were f- leading figures of the regime. And of course, Rouhani and Zarif, the previous uh, administration, were trying to be reform-minded. What do you think killed reform and brought these hardline uh, government into power right now? Well, I think the U.S. policy is in some ways has contributed to that. I think the... The, 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 the Trump pulling out of the Iran deal. Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the other things is with the sense that there is a transition looming in Iran, uh, that the supreme leader is 83, he's reportedly ailing again, he suffered from prostate cancer in 2014, that there is a sense that very in the very near future, the next two, three years, that there will be a transition from the current supreme leader to a new system. And they're trying to build, to fortify the system so it won't collapse then. And I think these protests have underscored to them how vulnerable they may be, not necessarily now, but down the road. What should we be looking at when we look at Iran over the next few weeks? I think you want to see what, how hard the regime comes down on the girls if they allow you know, enough of these little protests, the flash mobs, to get out there. Um, they've cracked down on the Internet, uh, including Instagram, which is one of the few outlets remaining to post on social media. Uh, whether they close down the universities and the schools, which is where much, much of the action has taken place. How far they're willing to go to punish the kids, because this is the third generation. And the first two suffered hardships, the Iran-Iraq war, the upheaval of the, of, after the revolution and so forth. This is the first generation, the, the, the Gen Z, born between 1997 and 2012, who feels kind of the, the freedom to do what they want and not have to worry about, you know, fighting a war or, um, you know, post-revolutionary upheaval. So watch the girls. We will watch them and we'll have you back to tell us more. Robin Wright, always a pleasure. Thanks. Next on GPS, as Ukraine's cities are being attacked by drones, I'll explain to you how these unmanned aerial vehicles continue to reshape modern warfare and may do even more in the future. That story when we come back. And now for the last look. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a return to the dark days of old when great powers routinely tried to conquer their smaller neighbors. But this war is being fought in 2022 with new technologies that are reshaping warfare. Among the most important are drones. Now, there's been a lot of breathless coverage on drone strikes, so let me explain what drones can and cannot do. In the first few weeks of the war, Ukrainians hailed the use of Turkish-made Bayraktar drones in beating back the Russian invasion. Videos circulated of those drones pounding Russian convoys with laser-guided explosives. Grateful Ukrainians named animals and babies Bayraktar, 
A song about the Bayraktar went viral. Bayraktar. In recent days, Russia has grabbed headlines with a different kind of drone. Iranian-made kamikaze drones. These don't fire weapons, but are themselves the weapon sent to smash into targets in Kyiv and other cities. Ukraine has used kamikaze drones against Russia as well. But the focus on attack drones, whether they fire weapons or are themselves the weapon, misses the point. More than being a force on their own in this war, drones have enhanced other forms of power. They are not the heroes, but trusty sidekicks. They generally lack the firepower to take out major targets. Experts believe the big damage to Ukrainian infrastructure during the kamikaze attacks has actually been from cruise missiles. The drones helped by flooding the zone to overwhelm Ukraine's air defenses. Most were shot down, but missiles were able to slip through. These drones are serving a psychological purpose as well. Russia is showing that it can hit Ukrainian cities far from the front lines, and Ukraine has apparently also used drones to strike deep into Crimea. They hover and buzz overhead, loudly sending the message that no one and nowhere is safe. Peter Singer of New America argues that they're similar to the V-1 flying bomb attacks on London in 1944, which sowed terror among the British people. On the battlefield, more advanced drones can be used for pinpoint attacks. The U.S. has made great use of precision drone strikes in the war on terror. Its technology has gotten so good that when America assassinated the al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahri in a bustling Kabul neighborhood, it is believed to have sent a kind of spinning saw to shred him to pieces while avoiding any big explosion that would hurt others. No one else has America's capabilities, but even Ukraine has been able to use a drone to drop a bomb into an open tank hatch. The most important role for drones in Ukraine, says Peter Lee of the University of Portsmouth, is not in attacking themselves, but in providing surveillance and reconnaissance for heavy weaponry to take out high-value targets. Drones are eyes in the sky that tell soldiers where to aim the big guns. One example, when the Ukrainians triumphantly sank the Russian flagship Moskva, drones helped them figure out the precise coordinates to target. Cruise missiles delivered the knockout blow. But remember, drone technology is still in its infancy. Many that are being used in Ukraine are inaccurate, easily shot down, or able to be jammed by electromagnetic interference. Singer argues that we won't see the real potential of drones until countries unleash swarms of hundreds or thousands of drones that are equipped with artificial intelligence. Functioning as one large coordinated armada, they would make a truly fearsome fleet. So while drones today are less than the buzz surrounding them, mostly playing a supporting role, in time, they could become a decisive factor in the battles of the future. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. 